Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Learning to Swim, Anne and I are joined by Eva Badowska, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Associate Vice President of Arts and Sciences at Fordham University, who shares her thoughts about facing challenges, making choices, and maintaining connections. Thank you for being here. It's really awesome that you're able to talk to us. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you do? I'm Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences here at Fordham. I have this other highfalutin title, the Associate Vice President for Arts and Sciences. And in that role, I work with my colleagues in Arts and Sciences and our two undergraduate colleges and graduate school as a team leadership group for Arts and Sciences. We make sure that we have common goals and strategies and done. And with you, I have another role, Anne, and sometimes I think that's my favorite one. Um, <laughs> so we, we co-lead the Reimagining the Future of Higher Education incubator and think tank. One of the big reasons to want to talk to you is you've been a real leader at Fordham in asking us to think about the future of higher education. And now with this catastrophe, it feels like the future is here in a way that we wouldn't have welcomed. So I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on how your thinking about reimagining higher education has shifted in the past month. Our learning goals for this, as I recall them a month ago, were to prepare our community to be really engaged with thinking about the current moment in higher education and how we need to take it on board so that we can serve our students better. And really, when I, when I think about what's most important, and it perhaps came more into focus now, so I think that's the link to today, is that what we're thinking about is how we can best prepare the right learning environments for our students. Not how we can teach them, but how we can create the ecosystem in which they can flourish. Assuming that that ecosystem has just changed and um, changed because of who they are and what the world is like. And Kathy Davidson's phrase, the world in flux, seems so prescient to me, especially right now. And so that's the broad goal. And we, we built this syllabus around Kathy Davidson's um, The New Education book with the hope of creating partnerships across uh, institutional sides so that we can be thinking about higher education, the Fordham context, and where we need to take it. And I remember that when we first met, Sometime early in this semester, I was standing in front of the room gesticulating widely about how we, you know, the glacial pace of change in higher education. And now the joke seems a little cruel and or maybe not so much cruel as, as inappropriate because what we're living through is not a hoax and it's not a thought experiment. And so I think that what has happened is that the pace has accelerated but it has accelerated in an absolutely kind of rapid onset fashion, not in an intentional fashion. And that changes everything. It feels like a cataclysm rather than mindful change. 
I'm listening and I'm thinking about that phrase you used that was about this change that's acceleration without intention. So I grew up in Seattle and went to the same high school as the great uh, martial arts uh, movie star, Bruce Lee. I've gotten kind of interested in Bruce Lee. And one of the things Bruce Lee says about facing a really dangerous opponent is that you have to be like water, right? So you move with the water. You When you're in a crisis, you surf it, right? You have to surf it. You can't fight it. You're not going to beat the tidal wave, right? We're not going to beat the coronavirus, but we have to survive it. And we survive it in some way by surfing it with some kind of intention. And so I'm wondering what for you is emerging as the ideas from the think tank that you want to inhabit more completely? First of all, it's it's a brilliant analogy, surfing through water and the need to swim and surf. And I've been truly just in awe of our faculty because I would guess 99% of our faculty have not swam these particular waters before, have not taught online, had no intention of teaching online, maybe even had reservations about teaching online, and they're swimming beautifully. So what emerges is odd and really surprising and maybe not exactly an answer to your question but I feel and I think you've been talking about it too a need to figure out how we connect and engage not in person and so oddly the words that stand out are engagement connection community meaning humanity all of these things that actually don't talk about technology at all. The guiding question has become, how do we keep all that? It's a really sudden realization that this is what matters. And what right. matters is for students to learn. And you can't have learning, I believe, without genuine, profound engagement without connection and exchange of ideas, without a sense of community with other learners, without a sense that what we're doing is meaningful. And so, so I think that's what shifted. When we think about innovation, that's coupled with disruption, with technology, and maybe what this crisis has made us realize is that we need to outivate. Is that a word? Like reconnect? <laughs> <laughs> reconnect with the human components of teaching. Now that this is happening, what does innovation mean? Does it mean something different to you now after what we've all, what we're all collectively experiencing? So I think I have to go back to or develop something that, um, that I said before, but, but let me first reflect on something that your question made me think about, which is that I think we, we're going sort of through chapters of this crisis. And I think the first chapter was, does the technology work? 
there was this question, will the bandwidth sustain it? Will we be able to connect? And the first questions, um, and I remember your, your own contribution, and it was revelatory. It was, it was a disaster the first time around, right? It was a disaster. It didn't work. Like, literally, the technology didn't work. Right. And I then, you know, and then Zoom came, and there was this moment of Zoomtopia, and now I still think we're kind of in this chapter two of Zoomtopia, which is let's just connect, connect via Zoom. And as long as we stay on Zoom, the same number of minutes that we normally held class, that's connection. But I think chapter three is beginning and chapter three is about, hmm, is this connection? I started thinking about it in terms of, and this, is, this was completely serendipitous, a couple of days ago, new guidance came out from the Department of Education on this standard that they have for what they call distance learning, which is not a phrase I love. And so they have the definition of distance learning, and it's learning via these remote means, amongst others, Wi-Fi and satellite, and even microwave. I don't know how you teach a class from microwave, but not a physicist. But then they start talking about what they consider to be good distance education. And they have a standard. And the standard um, talks about this phrase that's often abbreviated RSI, which is called regular and substantive interaction. And I really love this phrase. And they emphasize regular and substantive interaction. Not communication, not sending, you know, sending microwaves in one direction, but interaction. Something has to go and come back. And it has to be regular and it has to be substantive. And it doesn't say synchronous. It could be asynchronous. And so I am predicting that chapter three will be about how we continue to have regular and substantive interaction back and forth in ways that that are no, not quite so Zoom topic. You know, what, what I am thinking about is that fundamental innovation here, well, first of all, the, the shift to interaction, but the fundamental innovation is going to be about something really old, and that's about the credit hour, because it's this old chestnut of time in seat, and now it's time on Zoom, and the realization that time on Zoom does not equal learning. And that, you know, if you spend 75 minutes on Zoom, it doesn't mean that you've had substantive, regular interaction, right? And that, right. in fact, maybe in this new universe, interaction is different, that it takes multivalent, multi-layered types of interaction, and some of them in asynchronous types of interaction, that create altogether, but via different means, the same kind of community and connection and engagement that you might have created in, in a 75-minute class, that Zoom does really not replicate or stand in just because it has the same number of minutes. So that's an innovation because it really does unravel the idea of a credit hour. 
I think that's really, I want to just pin that or mark that because I think that idea of the credit hours is so fascinating. And one of the things that to the side of that, that I've been really noticing that I'm grieving this week is that my life doesn't have any texture. And I think it's about the two dimensionality of the constant screen interaction, but it's Mm -hmm. also the lack of like what I loved about the rhythm of the life that I built for myself in this job was every day had a long commute in which I was around a whole bunch of strangers on a train listening to my podcast. That was great, right? That was an interesting part of the day. And then I had another part of my day where I was with colleagues in meetings and teaching. And, you know, sometimes those meetings don't go well and sometimes they're great, but I enjoy, I love my colleagues. I love my students, right? And there was that part of it. And then there was the alone in my office part of my day. And then there's the back with my family part of my day. And now I'm in this one room of my house all day long. And there's like no texture to it. And I feel myself getting stale. I I want to go back for a moment to the question that I never fully answered, which is how innovation, how my concept of innovation has changed. And I will continue to percolate on this question because I think it's a great one. And I'm not ready, but I want to I want to think aloud. And I think I started in that direction by saying that I used to think it's a technical problem. And and technical in the kind of full sense of the term. There's a problem of techne. And now it seems that it's a problem of meaning making and not so much a problem of technique. Technique is is going to follow. It's going to be found through those connections that we're building. It seems in some sense so patently obvious that the problems will require some technical solutions, but they're not the center of the puzzle anymore. And so now innovation seems to me about how the technical puzzle arranges itself around what matters. And it's it's, it's an obvious thing, except the shades have changed because the feeling of loss at the center is so profound. And I really want to thank Anne for the word grief because I've been I've been thinking about grief a lot. And, you know, you and I have been talking about grieving the assumptive world. And I think part of our assumptive world in academia is that engagement is to be taken for granted and that interaction is to be taken for granted and that the real problems are elsewhere. And I think now The real problem is interaction, deep, profound interaction. We've been thinking about engagement from a student perspective, right? How do we keep our students engaged? But from your position in the university, you're really well positioned to think about what our faculty most need now. And I'm wondering from your conversations with faculty members and with department chairs and program heads, what is your sense of what faculty are most needing in this moment? Recognition, acknowledgement. You know, I would want to say support, but I don't want to presume that I could offer it. And I think the two of you 
really, we all have been trying to find different ways to support the faculty. But I have found that, number one, connecting with the department chairs or with individual faculty members has never been more important to me. I have never felt as profound a need to reach out. So, for example, I would hear someone say something on the listserv and I would intuit distress. And I felt compelled to send an email on the side and say, I heard it. And, yeah. and I, oh, I can't do anything else. I can say, I heard it. And, and I don't know if it matters. So I do think these little waves of, I'm sorry, you're stressed. It sounds like it's hard. They matter. I know what you mean in saying, I wonder if it matters, right? Because the worst thing to receive when you need support is hollow support. And yeah. so when you're trying to offer support, you feel this, I do anyway, this anxiety that like, I don't want you to think I'm, you know, even because I can't actually help you. Like I can't actually come and give mm -hmm. you an hour of childcare. I can't actually teach your class for you, but I can say to you, this is really tough. And it sounds like it's really stressful right now. So one of the things that happened, and so that's a concrete example. So I, as you know, I, I have a 12 year old son being a mother at home and being a dean has been a lot. So Indeed. I've been thinking a lot about colleagues who have small children and I've felt the most distress coming from, from those colleagues. And so I reached out to um, a number of faculty members who have small children and we started exchanging emails. And some of them were griping and some of them were exchanging videos and tweets that we found consoling or annoying or infuriating. And then what came out of it is a proposal that one of the faculty members came up with that we might have a kind of mutual support network in departments, uh, mm. a kind of, you know, a, a feminist action par excellence, not imposed, but rather how do we create these networks of support? How do we offload faculty who need help at this moment, right? You can't, as you said, you can't teach a class for someone, but presumably you could take their major advising or their senior thesis advising or help them department when you have childcare versus when you don't. But they can't be offloaded by administrative action. I mean, I can't write to the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, all 1,100 of them. I ended up writing to department chairs and program directors just to gently suggest that they find ways that are appropriate in their local communities to ask this question. What would be appropriate to do or not appropriate to do? Because it may be just completely inappropriate in certain circumstances to help people and of course, you know, I was mostly thinking about parents of small children, but there are lots of colleagues who have elderly parents who are very worried or have um, caretaking obligations or who are ill. And I've noticed is that in some departments, this is taking off. They've created networks of support in various forms. So, you know, some, some networking and mutual support is, is certainly possible, but it can't happen by administrative action.
Well, but that's all about what you were saying before. I mean, that that's exactly engagement, connection, and community, isn't it? Um, the one thing I want, I'm curious to hear you talk about is how do you feel like yourself in your job these days? How do you feel like a leader? How do you feel like a dean when you're operating out of the satellite office of your living room? I feel a deep need to be present to people. And for the life of me, I don't know if it's important to them, uh, <laughs> but, I, uh, but I feel that it's necessary to be available. And so my days were already long and now they're as long as they, they've ever been. And of course, it's already difficult to have any kind of boundary when you're in a home environment. But it essentially seems that it's not that I'm home all the time. I'm at work all the time. It's a little bit like what people who teach online report, which is that, you know, in face-to-face -face teaching, you leave the classroom and in online teaching, you never leave the classroom. And now I feel that I never leave my job. But I've also, I think, become more of a person in my job. In other words, I've never talked as freely about what I'm experiencing at home. And I've never talked as freely about what the faculty as whole human beings are experiencing at this time. So it's a different kind of presence and a different kind of connection. I, for example, would never feel compelled to have daily call-ins with department chairs in a regular time of the semester. And in the first week of this crisis, that seemed to be like, this was the only thing to keep us sane, was to have a call-in for an hour every morning at 9 a.m. because everything we were dealing with was new. We're still the community of dean and chairs. And that has not changed. That underlying reality is still the reality. I'm still your person. I'm here for you. Even if I don't have a solution, I'll make a note and I'll think about it and I'll try to find a solution. And even if I can't find a solution, I'll acknowledge that I can't find a solution. And I'll tell you, yeah, that really sucks. What I wanted to ask you is if you have a teacher in your own life who really mattered to you, that you'd like to talk about that person and how they shaped your sense of what education means. I was worried you would ask me this. The reason why I was worried is that really one thing comes to mind and it's very personal, but I'll share it. It was when I was in graduate school, towards the very end of graduate school, my mentor, Mary Jacobus, Professor Mary Jacobus, a romanticist and feminist literary historian, very engaged with the literature on psychoanalysis. Um, she was the, my, my dissertation director. So I know that many people have, uh, you know, horror stories about their dissertation directors. I, I have the opposite. She was a, a critical figure. And I was going through an absolutely hellish time. Uh, it was my sixth year as a dissertation student, so a critical year for, for finishing your dissertation. I, as many of you know, I, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I was very worried that if I don't get a job, I will lose my visa and, and have to leave. And I couldn't imagine that. 
And I started going through various health problems. And I had surgery on my eye. Um, and so I was seeing her to talk about my dissertation chapter with my whole eye in a bandage. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I looked, I, I just completely looked like I was falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> like I was literally falling apart. And she sat across from me and I, you know, started going on about identification and psychoanalysis and um, <laughs> the Brontes and, and I'm spewing stuff. And she looks at me and she says, you don't have to fall apart to write this. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it it connected the learning. It connected the learning to my being, and and it literally felt like I was falling apart in order to complete this dissertation. And in this sort of self erasure, like I was going to undo myself just so that this piece of writing could be the best that it could be so that it could be completed so that I would quote unquote survive in this country and she said really this undoing of yourself is is not a prerequisite for a completed dissertation (laughs) and you know this stayed with me it wasn't you know this charismatic lecture in front of the classroom it it was her seeing me. Connection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and a kind of permission, too, that's so beautiful and so important, right, is that the kind of frantic state that we get ourselves in as perfectionists, as hard workers, as strivers, as people who feel the precarity of our own ambitions in relation to the rest of the world, right? That, you know, it'll never be enough. I can just, if I just do a little more, just read one more article and to have someone say it would be okay to rest for a minute is really, Mm -hmm. really, really powerful. I don't think Fordham is ever going to lose what Fordham is. I think those connections that we built before and the ones we're building now are all meaningful. And we'll figure it out. I, I do have this profound, call it administrative optimism, but I think it's actually deeper than that, that it, this doesn't go away. This sense of connection and relationship and meaning is so deep that it will carry. It's the question of figuring out how. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I really, really appreciate it. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.